Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and I'm joined uh, as, as usual with Dr. Kenneth Hall. And, uh, and Ken, it's good to have you uh, here in the studio. It's good to be here, Marcus. It makes it much easier. We like to do this more often. Thank you for joining us on this program. I, again, I, I, I pray that our weekly discussions are an encouragement to you. Uh, we believe that, uh, that the way to become deeper in Christ is by becoming deeper in Scripture as well as deeper in history, deeper in, in the tradition of our church and understanding uh, how, through the Holy Spirit, uh, the gospel of Christ has been preserved, protected, proclaimed by the church throughout these last 2,000 years. And uh, we'd love to have you be involved with this program. You can join our email list at deepinscripture.com. Uh, or you can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. Join us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, but we'd love to hear your questions. Um, and in a moment, I have an email that we'll address. But today, as we continue our look at the, Paul's letter to the Romans, we're going to look today uh, and focus on verses 18 through... 32, so a long section. I, we may get through it all today. If we don't, we'll pick it up again next week. But uh, the overall point of this section, as Paul moves now into the, the theological issues that he intends to deal with in this letter, <clears throat> is that he's, he's just mentioned in verse 16 and 17 the gospel through which God revealed the, his power in righteousness. And behind this is this idea, and that is that every single human being who's ever existed has been created in the image of God. Every single one. And through the death and resurrection of Christ, every single human being has been redeemed. I'm not saying everyone's been saved, but everyone has been redeemed. And God desires, Scripture tells us, that every single person should be saved. And the gospel that he's given is now our responsibility to share with everyone, because everyone's conscience has been touched Every person has within their conscience a desire for God, or as St. Augustine put it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. This is every person. So you watch on the news, TV, you look around your community, you sit in a, on a park bench and watch every person come by, walk by you, no matter what they look like, everyone has been created in the image of God, and everyone has within their conscience a desire for God. In his love, God has revealed himself to humanity since the beginning of time in at least three ways. Number one, through his creation, and we'll talk about this later. Second, to his chosen people, Israel. We see this all through the Old Testament, through the law, through the, the variety of prophets, God revealed himself. And then thirdly, finally, as Hebrews says, he's revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, through the gospel. And through the gospel, we know and learn Jesus, and we see the power and righteousness of God. 
In today's text, which we'll look at, St. Paul describes what happens when people reject all three of these revelations, when they reject the gospel, they reject the message that God gave through Israel, and when they reject the truth of God that's in creation, and then create their own gods, and then live and base their lives around these false gods. So in other words, every person has a desire for God, but when they reject the true message of God and create a new image of God to feed that desire within, it changes who they are and how they live. Oh, that's absolutely true, Mark, because I, I love the way that you've, you've, you've framed this uh, text for today, because what Paul is doing is setting up <clears throat> the background for the proclamation of the gospel of uh, salvation by grace through faith. And what he's talking about in this context is how low humanity can go if it re rejects God. You know, and I, I couldn't help but think that this morning as I was rereading this text in my personal Bible reading and prayer that I, I read this text many, many years ago, and I thought, well, okay, that describes the way the pagan world was in Paul's time. And when I reread it this morning, I thought, wait a minute, he's describing the newspaper today because of the paganism in our own culture. So the relevance of this is astounding when you think about what can happen to humanity when it turns away from God. And of course, what we're going to see is that as Paul goes later on to say, we're all, even even the Gentile, the Gentile and the Jew are under sin. And that's why salvation comes in Christ. That's grace. It's redeemed. We're redeemed in Christ. And then we receive that in faith in the sacraments. When our Lord spoke to the Jews, of course he was a Jew, so I mean that, yeah. that was the culture, but when he was speaking to those people to whom he'd been sent, which is the Jewish community, when he said to them, no one comes to the Father but by me, hmm. he meant that this third means of revelation is essential. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you reject the gospel, we see today, if you look to the news, that uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters, apart from the revelation of Christ, mm -hmm. struggle to know God and to live out their lives. You know, one of the things that we see in, of, of people that reject the gospel is an inadequate understanding of forgiveness, an, in, a, an inadequate understanding of letting go, oh, of true. moving on. In one of the main things we see in Christ from the cross is forgive them for they know not what they do, is letting go and moving on. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that revelation, you can live your whole life in wanting to get retribution, that's right. remembering what, what they did to us. Well, that's a whole. And then we look at the news and we see uh, Islam, which though they supposedly believe the same God, we believe that. Yet without the revelation of the gospel or not accepting the full revelation of the Old Testament, they end up with a different understanding of this God that, that's in their conscience. Yeah. And so it's a twisted. And then you can't see far in the news to see people that reject the gospel, reject the, the message 
to the Israelites, even reject the 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 message uh, of the uh, of Islam. Uh, you know, looking at nature in weird ways, recreating yeah. man yeah. and morals yeah. and philosophy by yes. looking at creation uh, yeah. imperfectly. And so we'll deal with all that today in, in text because today's text shows the trajectory of this. That's right. Yeah. That's the point of this text, the trajectory. What happens? It's kind of like shooting a rocket to the moon. If you begin off by a fraction of an, of an angle, in the end, you miss the moon. You know, that's what's happening in today's text. Before we get to it, though, uh, every week we want to use an email that we received. And so you know, we encourage you to send us an email. We'd love your thoughts uh, and questions. Uh, but George writes, hello, gentlemen, on a recent episode, you guys touched on the fact that Paul was quoting from the Septuagint and not the Hebrew Bible. I've heard this claim before, but very seldom are examples given. Could you give some examples of this so that I can go and see this for myself? And he said, oh, and you just might want to th do a whole program on it in, in a break from our Roman series sometimes. We might, but we'll, we'll just take a little time today because this, this to me is a, a really big subject. And actually, it's one of, the, one of the stepping stones to my own becoming Catholic when I realized this because... Um, and Ken, maybe I've got an example to show, but maybe before I give that example, Ken, why don't you describe to the audience what the Septuagint was? Yeah, the Septuagint was the translation of the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek that was done around 250 A.D. from uh, in Alexandria. Did I say A.D.? I'm sorry. B.C. Thank you. Yeah. 250 BC, so it was done by Jews in Alexandria, Egypt. Remember, the city of Alexandria was built by Alexander the Great. <clears throat> and uh, so he started this city, and it was going to be a great monument to his kingship. And so it had a great library. It had a learned Jewish community there. But there were now Jews who lived in Alexandria in Egypt who were speaking Greek, which was the lingua franca of the ancient eastern part of the Roman Empire, and they couldn't, they couldn't read Hebrew. So they started translating it into Greek, and uh, there's a very famous letter of Aristeas that describes this, and it might be somewhat, you know, manufactured as the way it was done. But anyway, that is the Septuagint. It's called Septuagint because the word Septuagint means 70 in Greek, and it was supposedly 70 translators that translated this this into Greek. And one of the reasons there's some differences in certain verses between the Greek and the Hebrew text as we now have it mm -hmm. uh, that was preserved, I think, through the Pharisees. In no, the, through the Masoretes, it's called. Yeah, yeah. In the second century, right? It's AD, yeah. AD, yeah, 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 AD yeah. so 400 years later, yeah, yeah, we yeah. have the Hebrew text that became kind of the authoritative Hebrew. But one of the reasons that uh, that the Septuagint is so important is that many would claim that it's an earlier witness. To the earlier Hebrew text. Yeah. That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, so where there are differences in the Septuagint and then the Hebrew text that we now have is, the, the scholars would argue that some would say that this is because the Septuagint is a, a witness to a more accurate earlier rendition of the Hebrew text. Uh, so, now, the reason this was an important 
journey for me was when I was a Protestant minister, and of course I was a Protestant for 40 years and then a pastor for 10 of those uh, after seminary, uh, and would every, every week when I would prepare for my sermons, as I was taught in, in seminary, basically I was supposed to come up with my own translation every week of the text. I would go back to the original language, whether it was Hebrew or Greek, and my goal was to give my own translation. In other words, I was going to make sure that whatever translation of the Bible my congregation was reading, that it was accurate. So I would just do my own translation, and an example of that would be in Romans, we looked at last week, Romans chapter 117, where in my Revised Standard versions, it has a quote from the Old Testament, and Paul says, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Now that's the way um, the translators of the RSV translated that passage. Now that's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 4. And as a, a minister, okay, good, I'll go back to Habakkuk and see where it comes from. But when you read in Habakkuk, the translators of the Revised Standard Version quote it as, Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So the New Testament has it, he who through faith is righteous shall live. The Old Testament has, the righteous shall live by his faith. So I remember my question was, well, either St. Paul had bad memory or he had a bad text in front of him, but why isn't the, the New Testament quote of the Old Testament word for word? And at the time, I didn't have an answer for that. And I began finding this problem in many texts of the New Testament, where the New Testament in this case, it's, it's a minor difference, but there were other places in Scripture where the New Testament quote from the Old don't even seem to yeah. be anywhere near. And at the time, I didn't know what it was until I realized that the issue has to do with the Septuagint, the Greek That's right. translation behind. Yeah. Well, and another example. You want, is, you want to go, I was going to show, maybe Ken, you could show behind this passage before you get to your other one, sure. the actual Greek parallels. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the text here that uh, is translated in the Septuagint in Habakkuk 2.4 says um, that the righteous will live by my faith, is what it says in the Greek. Now, the Hebrew text that, that you read that you read from the English is tra that's translating the Hebrew a little bit more literally, and what that, <clears throat> but what Paul quotes is not he doesn't translate from the Hebrew text into Greek, he's quoting from the Greek Septuagint. And what well, I remember when I saw this, and I had before me my Greek New Testament, which, you know, in Greek it says, and Ken, maybe you should read it what it says in Greek. But the point was, word for word, letter for letter. Mm -hmm what Paul is quoting from in Romans is a direct quote of the Septuagint, yeah. word for word, letter for letter. Yeah. The only thing that's different is he leaves out the word my, and that's in the text of Habakkuk 2.4, and he just says the righteous will live by faith. Now, but you're absolutely right. What this suggests is several important things. One is that in God's providence, he was guiding these people. He was, he was guiding the 
um, the Jews to translate it into Greek. Now, why would he do that? Well, because he, the Lord in heaven knew he was going to send his son on earth to be the savior of all. And the Hebrew wasn't a widely spread, a spoken language, whereas Greek was. So the, the background is being prepared. As you mentioned earlier about God's revealing himself through the providence of his guiding the people of Israel, that's exactly what's takes, taking place with the Septuagint. He's preparing the world for the coming of his son, and there's going to be this you know, relatively universal language called Greek. So that's what's taking place. So Paul quotes from the Septuagint, because he knows that that's the Bible that prob- they're probably reading in Rome during uh, as they're reading the Old Testament. Uh, there are other examples, as you mentioned. Um, there's, um, there's, for example, the letter to the Hebrews, all of the quotations from the Old Testament, and by the way, there are many, right? In the letter to the Hebrews, there's many quotations yep. from the Old Testament. All of the quotations come from the Septuagint. None of them are translated directly by the author from Hebrew. They're, they're come from the Septuagint. Now, that, I think, is interesting, too, because if you study Hebrews very carefully, it's clearly written to Jewish Christians, and probably those Jewish Christians are in Jerusalem, right? So even the Christians, even the Jews in Jerusalem were reading the Bible, the Old Testament, in Greek rather than directly in Hebrew. Now, that doesn't mean all of them were. Undoubtedly, Hebrew was also spoken. But the most of them were learning in Greek because living in Jerusalem in the first century, I'm sure everybody spoke Greek as well as Aramaic and possibly Hebrew as well. And, and in some ways, that explains why, if you look to Matthew 16, I mean, this isn't, isn't the, uh, the Septuagint issue, but it explains why in Matthew 16, when um, in verse 18, when, when our Lord says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, yeah. that, you know, tradition has it that Matthew originally wrote the gospel in Aramaic. Mm-hmm. So that would have originally been literally, you know, I tell you, thou art Cephas. Cephas. And on this Cephas, same exact spelling, I will build my church. But then later, Matthew was translated into Greek for the very reason you're saying, because that was the language that was the the universal language of that region. So when you take the word kepha into Greek, You end up with a feminine word. That's right, Petra. Petra. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't use a feminine word, Phyllis, for you know, man. whatever, for a man. <laughs> right. So when it was translated into Greek, the Greek translator of Matthew changed it to Peter, yeah. Petros, yeah, yeah. which is the masculine form of this word. Right. You know, it has no other theological interpretation which many Protestants have kind of tried to make out of it. It just has to do with taking Aramaic into the universal language of the church. Yeah, you know, it's very possible, too. We, we should not exclude the possibility that our Lord was actually speaking Greek 
at the time that he said this, you are, he says, you are Petros, and on this Petra, you are rock or rocky, <laughs> yeah. and on this rock, I will build my church. That that possibility cannot be excluded as, as, as very real. Um, let me just mention one final thing before we leave this topic of the Septuagint. There's a very famous case of this in the letter. I mentioned that the letter of the Hebrews uses all quotations from the Septuagint. There's one that's particularly striking, and that's in chapter 10 of the letter to the Hebrews, where the author is quoting from Psalm 40, 40 that is in the Hebrew uh, ordering or numbering, because he begins in, in this quotation in Hebrews 10.5, it says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. But if you look back at the Hebrew text of Psalm 40, it says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have pierced my ear, or you've dug my ear. Now, most knowledgeable interpreters of that text of Psalm 40 would say this is a reference to the a custom of when a Hebrew brother had another one as we would call a slave or a servant, but it was like an indentured servanthood for seven years. They could never have an indentured servant for more than seven years. But if after that, the servant said, well, I love my master. I want to work him, work for him for the rest of my life. Um, I will become his permanent indentured servant or slave. Then they would put a, they would pierce the ear of the slave, and that would be a sign that he belonged to this person. That could, is probably what is being referred to in Psalm 40. So that what it's saying is God is saying, sacrifice and offering I have not desired, but what I've desired from you is obedience. Now, however, the Septuagint did not translate it that way. It translated, sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And it's interesting that the letter to the Hebrews actually picks up on this language by the author comments on this in verse 10. And anybody who's got their Bible open can read with us in Hebrews 10.10. It says, by the, by, it was by his will that we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. God prepared a body for the Son, the eternal Son, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and it's the, that body, the offering of that body on the cross, that we are sanctified. So it doesn't take the comment here, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, is not made on the basis of the Hebrew text, but on the basis of the Septuagint That is text. So, so significant, because when I think about preaching, Back when I was a preacher, you know, I would take my text and I'd build the theology of my sermon on the text. I wouldn't change the text mm -hmm. to back up my theology. No, right. You know, so Paul is basing his theology on the text that he had in the Septuagint. That's right. If he was using the Hebrew text, he would the, the author of Hebrews would not have had the, the text to build his theology of the body. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So it really points to the significance. And for me, the reason that the Septuagint was so significant in my own journey was that 
in the canon of Scripture that developed in the early church and was finally affirmed by the bishops of the church in the end of the fourth century at the councils of Rome and, and Carthage and, and uh, that it was the, the canon of the Septuagint. That's right. Not the canon of the which, Hebrew which Bible. Which included the Deuterocanonical books. Right. Exactly. Or what Protestants call the Apocrypha. All right. Now we're going to... So we covered that a little bit, maybe more than we should have, but here we are uh, with a couple minutes left before our break. Let's jump into the text. And Ken, just as an overview, that this whole text, as I mentioned in the opening can be understood as a trajectory of what happens when humanity, individuals as well as cultures, reject revelation. Mm. And we see this text broken up into this flow of ideas, where if we begin with uh, verses 16 and 17 we looked at last week, we see in those that God revealed to humanity that he loved, his power and righteousness through the gospel. And God builds on the revelation that he has given to humanity in creation, as well as the revelation that God gave to his chosen promised people, Israel. But he fulfills that, as our Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount, through the coming of his Son in the gospel. So that's where this section begins is affirming the revelation of the gospel. But in that, we see in verse 18, which we'll look at, that he, throughout this, God also revealed to humanity his, God's wrath. In other words, that God expects humanity to live in obedience and holiness. And if we don't, then we reap God's wrath as a result. And that's the Old Testament as well as the New. And... <clears throat> But on top of that, verses 19 and 20 affirm the fact that even apart from the gospel and the revelation to Moses, God reveals himself in creation. It's there. And then verse 21 says, as a result of that, no one is without excuse. Everyone in this world, in their conscience, should recognize the reality of God. And then from verse 22 on, we see the trajectory of what happens when humanity rejects all three of these forms of revelation, the gospel, God to the Israelites in creation, and what happens in the immorality of our culture. We'll talk about this when we get back. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program. I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. 
on the journey home. Marcus welcomes former Protestant Dr. David Gregson to the show. He'll discuss how his studies led him home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're looking at uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And just before the break, I, I, I gave an overview of this section and the trajectory of, on the one hand, revelation, and on the other hand, how man responds. And he focuses in this section on, on the negative response. Well, you know, it's interesting that this declaration in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, uh, even as it's written, the just shall live by faith, or the one who's righteous through faith shall live. And then he immediately turns to this, now the wrath of God is also revealed from heaven. Paul here is kind of like a doctor that walks into your hospital and says, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. <laughs> the bad news is that God is angry with us. <laughs> the, the, the good news is that there's a, there's a solution to the problem. All right. Now, <clears throat> this isn't very popular in our day, but what, he, what Paul says here is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness or unrighteousness of, of, of human unrighteousness that of men who are holding down the truth in injustice or in unrighteousness. Now, I think this is very revealing or very, very significant because how is the wrath of God being re- revealed? Well, first of all, we have to remember that, that when it speaks about the wrath of God, God is not like us human beings. Suppose, so for example, when I was a boy, I had a terrible, terrible temper, you know, which shows what the grace of God can do in a person. <laughs> All right. But I had a terrible temper. So if somebody, you know, cheated in baseball or something, you know, I get really explosively angry, you know, at them for doing that. God is not, doesn't have those explosive human emotions. But what this is talking about is this profound deep displeasure that God has when people turn away from him. Why would he have that kind of displeasure? Because of what you said earlier. His love is so profound that when people reject that love, Marcus, they're rejecting him. Ken, it seems to me that in this, what's truly unique about the uh, Judeo-Christian perspective on this is that all through the Old Testament, we see God saying, this is how you're supposed to live. If you do so, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll reap my wrath. That's all the way through. And it seems to me that's unique about the Judeo-Christian perspective is that 
that the model God gives for following is one of holiness and love and mercy. Other faiths have a similar right or wrong. It's just that the model they are to follow isn't always one of mercy, love, and holiness. Well, we're going to get to that in weeks to come as we talk more in Romans, but you're absolutely right about that. I've often thought of writing a book called uh, A World Without Forgiveness. What would the world be like without the gospel of Jesus Christ? And we have a picture of that in this text in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, because Paul is talking about, he's, he's portraying a picture of a stair step going down yeah. to degradation of what's going to happen to human beings when they turn away from God. You know, Ken, in that verse 18, you're talking about that last line, which is easy to jump over because we want to move into the rest. But there's something in that that really reminds me of the world we see today where it says, who by their wickedness suppress yeah. the truth. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, this, you know, that uh, the lifestyles of people, one of the reasons they don't want to hear the truth is because they're going to have to change the yeah. way they live, so they they not only live their own unholiness, as we're going to look at, but they promote it. Mm -hmm. They change a culture to get to the point where you must live the way they live, yeah. or you're persecuted. And it becomes, it becomes extremely intolerant right. of, of goodness. Right, and this is one of the things that happens in a human being, and it doesn't matter what it could be you, Marcus. It could be me. It doesn't matter who it is, but any human being is subject to this possibility that we can begin to call good evil and evil good, and this is what Paul is talking about. Has happened in the pagan world, and he says that where it began was by the rejection of God's revelation of Himself in nature. Yeah, let me, let me read those passages, Ken, uh, verse 19 and 20, which you, you yourself have written a book called The Two Books of God, yeah, um, uh, which deal with this. But verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, have been clearly perceived in the things that he has made. This this debate, and we might say, was going on. I was reading not long ago, the great Roman orator Cicero has this treatise called De Natura Deorum, on the nature of the gods. But basically what he's describing is the debate between whether the, the universe as a physical universe is all there is, and that's people like Lucretius would have believed that later on, or people like Cicero believe, no, there's there's something beyond, there's something that must explain this beauty and this orderliness of the created order. And so even apart from the revelation of God in the scriptures and through the Jews, people were debating this. And you know what? We're still debating this very question today because the heart of atheism is not a rejection of God. It's a belief that in the material world is all that there is. And it begins in that, and it rejects that the idea that you can infer the existence of this invisible God from the visible order around us. This is one of the reasons why, you know, before the revelation of Christ, you have Socrates and Plato, yeah. and then his disciple Aristotle, yeah. recognizing from creation the reality of a creator. 
And then that's why the earliest church fathers, like Justin and others, did not fully reject Greek philosophy, but recognized that there was a witness to the reality of God in Greek philosophy, which was then picked up later by men like Augustine and then Thomas Aquinas to recognize just what Paul is saying here, that God Mm -hmm. has revealed himself to everyone through the finger, his fingerprints in creation. Well, you know, Marcus, I know that you live out in the country here outside of Zanesville, and you see it perhaps more poignantly every day than I do. And that is, you look out into the world, and the natural human question is, so how did it get this way? Where did it come from? And not only originally, but what keeps it going in this order like this? How could the powers that make this happen how could it happen without that power being much greater than the thing itself, namely than the created order that we find around us? Paul is very clearly saying, and he ends that section by saying in verse at the end of verse 20, so that they are without excuse. If they use their minds properly, they could come to the conclusion that there is a God and that this God must be an infant. And that's exactly what Aristotle did. He came to the conclusion that the first cause of this creator order must itself not be a physical thing. Otherwise, it would itself need an explanation, right? So in the the Church affirmed this. In the First Vatican Council in the 1870s, the Church affirmed in the Constitution called Dei Filios, the Son of God, but it's it's a Constitution on the Revelation. It says that the existence of God can be known simply from reason, if you use your reason properly, which means what? Well, it means that many people today are not using their reason properly. After 30 years of teaching in university, I can tell you, there's a lot of people not using their reason properly. One thing that I've seen in living out in rural land, Ken, and I'm I'm not a you know, there are far sharper knives in the drawer than me, so trying to figure out what I'm, how to express what I'm seeing, but I talked to you a little bit about it, that, you know, our, our modern scientific industrialist culture and our whole lives built on the increasing of technologies in our lives and dependence on, on knowing life through the media. People know life through the media and are yeah. closed in their cars and you know they're isolated from creation in so many ways that creation becomes a blur a blur of green a blur of blue skies a blur of that but they no longer pause to look at the stars and if they don't even if they do pause to look at the stars they no longer know them they no longer can look at the order they can't you know you can't look up and see ursa ursula major and where is that in the sky? And realize that 3,000 years ago, David was looking at Ursula Major when he was out. Right. I mean, in it, it, you know, the intimacy of looking at a forest, do you see only this green blob right. or you, do you look intimately and, and pretty soon see, wait, that's a bur oak and that's a pin oak and that's a multiflora rose or that's a, a, a black-eyed Susan. When you do that, it... To me, it draws you into an intimacy reality of creation. And I think Bonaventure in his wonderful book, Journey of the Mind of God, was trying to say that's what Paul meant here is that's how you get back to God is to begin to see the vestiges of God in this. But we've lost it today. And just as it says in verse 18, today 
people have not only rejected God and the gospel and rejected the message of creation, but are creating their own interpretation of, of creation and in the midst of it, suppressing the truth that is there. Well, because of what you said earlier in your quotation from St. Augustine, where he says, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. If you don't have the true God in the sense that you're seeking him, you want to know the true God, not just false gods, you're going to do what? You're going to substitute some other God. It might be the creation. It might be the, the world and sort of in a sort of in nature mysticism. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, it might be your own creation of your minds. And again, when you think about what people believe today, people commonly accept as being true. You have to ask yourself the question, have they ever really thought about this very deeply? to see if what they believe is really true. But many people, sad to say, they would rather live with the concepts or the conceptions in their mind rather than questioning those conceptions and going back and looking at the evidence of creation itself. If you look uh, essentially from verse 16 on through 20, we see this escalating up a mountain of revelation. Yeah, that's right. An affirmation that every single human being in the world God has has reached out to mm-hmm. through the message of who he is. So that the end of verse 20, with all this information, every human being has within their conscience this message of God, and they're without excuse. And as Catholics, we believe that God gives everyone sufficient grace to respond. Well, and that's, that's where we have to always have our hope, too. The church's mission is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world, but it's built upon the background of creation and that conscience that you mentioned. And so when we go out there, we know we're not speaking in a vacuum. We're speaking to people that have already had some sense of God through the creation, through their conscience, maybe even through some good customs in their culture. So so they have... We're not speaking to, to you know, I, I think of the, the French tongues. missionaries that came to the Huron Indians up in Canada. Yeah, yeah. You know, Isaac Jogues and the others who gave their lives to yeah. bring the gospel to them. We, they did that because they realized that these Indians who had never heard the gospel yet had within their souls right. the seed of God. And they are, as Paul says, without excuse. And so they will be held accountable for how they lived according to their conscience. Yeah. And so that's why we had to bring the gospel to them and the graces of baptism so yeah. that they could have the assistance needed to interpret creation correctly, exactly. to know God and their called to be holy. Secularists today will criticize the church because they think the church is being imperialistic by its missionary work. And I remember hearing this in college in the 1970s, you know, when I was studying anthropology, the anthropologists, oh, they hate, you know, missionaries going into these different cultures because they're trying to change them and so forth. But when you think about it, the, the motivation for missionary activity is not to dominate but to help people to live in the fullness. The church has always said, well, the, God is going to judge people by, the, as you mentioned, the knowledge that they have, the level of the knowledge that they have of God. It might be through creation, maybe they'll never hear the gospel. But then our goal is not to leave them at that low level, but to bring them to a higher level to understand now how that 
creation finds its fulfillment in the redemption of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I would say at this point, if anyone wants to know what the Catholic Church believes about this issue of those in the church or outside the church, there's a document from Second Vatican Council called Lumen Gentium. And if you go to the paragraphs 14, 15, and 16 in Lumen Gentium, the church describes exactly how it understands those in the church, Christians who are not Catholics, mm -hmm. and then people who are not Christians and are called to be missionaries on all three fronts. That's right. Catholics need to be reconverted, non-Christians need to know the fullness, yeah. and those outside the church need to know the gospel. Uh, we can't take for granted anyone, including ourselves. And, exactly, <laughs> yeah. And and one thing is clear too, the, um, the, the world that we're living in today is a world that, need I say it, desperately needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs that forgiveness that Christ can give because it is carrying, people are carrying around a tremendous burden of shame and guilt for their sins. We need, and and people are, as you said earlier, they're not only living in certain ways that are completely bankrupt, but they're advocating that. Yeah. And they're trying to teach children these things. If you go through this Who this by text, their wickedness suppress the truth. I mean, that's yeah. what Paul's saying here. Yeah. From verse 21 down, we basically are coming down the other side of the mountain of revelation of what happens mm -hmm. when people reject. And so in verse 21, it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened, darkened, darkened yeah. and claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, Ken, to me, there's a description of, of not honoring, turning from God, and not thanking Him. I mean, to mm -hmm. me, that to me is when I look at the modern kind of, you know, pagan New Age movement that looks at the earth uh, you know, as our, you know, as our mother and all of that, you know, the one thing that they are missing, that they aren't hearing from looking at creation, is they're not being driven to their knees in gratitude. Yeah, exactly. For the Creator who's given this all to us. And those two things that Paul says here go right together, to glorify God and to give thanks. In other words, when you realize who God is, you fall upon your knees and you. You say, God, thank you so much for what you have given to me. If you don't live in that posture of gratitude, what happens is that eventually you become futile in your thinking. And I love the way he says this there, your mind becomes darkened. Now, one thing that great spiritual writers have said and great spiritual directors and confessors will tell you is that people can be otherwise brilliant, but when they're living in deep moral problems, their mind becomes darkened. They cannot see certain things. And boy, I'll tell you, you, you see that all over the universities today, yeah, yeah. where there's just a, a rampant immorality, and the professors themselves have darkened minds. I know, because I lived with them for 30-some years. Um, so and, Paul uh, goes on. Now go ahead, you please. I was going to say, you know, by this darkening, not only are they darkened, but they claim to be wise. You're talking about yeah. the professors. Yeah, yeah. And this, 
here Paul is quoting a psalm where claiming to wise they become fools. And you know, the, the interesting thing about whenever a, a New Testament author, even our Lord, quotes a psalm, he isn't, they aren't proof texting, they're bringing to the minds of their hearers the entire psalm. That's true, yeah. yeah. You know, when our Lord said from the, from the cross, you know, uh, you know, Father, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a psalm, which brings to the whole mind. Well, here we have the, the whole reference to the Old Testament text about they're not just becoming darkened. They think they're wise, but they're becoming fools because they're exchanging, verse 23, the glory of the immortal God for images. And in this yeah. case, resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. And Ken, that kind of reminds me of the modern movements that want to lift all of the creation equal with man. Absolutely. And that, you know, a friend of mine right now, we're writing a book together. It's a small little book of dialogues. And I think it's going to be significant. We'll come back to this maybe later. But it's a, it's a book about materialists or atheists on the one hand and believers on the other. But this is exactly the thing that he as a scientist had seen in his experience is that People in the secular mind, with secular minds today, they want to level everything out to the point where there's no differences between human beings and chimpanzees anymore. That there's obvious differences, and I could go into those if you want. But the fact is that they they want to make them insignificant. They want to make those differences insignificant, so that we're no more valuable than simply the atoms and the dust and the molecules out there. This is, this is what I would call really being futile in your thinking. What Paul is saying here is as a result of people rejecting the revelation of God, both in the gospel, through Israel, and in creation, their minds become darkened, they think they're wise, they start exchanging the glory of God for the gods of their own creation. Verse 24 says that God in his love for humanity lets humanity go free. You know, there's the mystery of God's love is he gives freedom, like the, the, the father and the prodigal son. He gives them the freedom. And Ken, let me read quickly, because we don't have a lot of time, but you can reflect as I read the verses 24 through 32 really quickly. As I read this, to what extent does this describe the world we are in today? Because it says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the cre creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those 
who practice them. Did this is come from this contemporary? Did this come from yesterday's newspaper? Oh Lord Jesus! I mean, <laughs> I mean yes, it's incredible what what Paul. I, as I mentioned earlier, as I, I remember reading this, you know, when I was a young man back in the seventies, and thinking, okay, well, that describes the way it was in Paul's day, and here it is. It's on our doorstep today, you know. And almost everything that I just read there, if I, um, of course, we're doing it on the radio now, but I could be, if I say this stuff is wrong today, I could be called intolerant. Well, in some countries, you could be put in jail for, for, for talking this way. You see, what Paul says here, and this is where we go back to that love of God that you mentioned. He says here three times, if you notice, in verse 24, he says that God gave them over or gave them up to their own lusts. Then he says again in verse 26, God gave them to these over, to these dishonorable passions. And then in verse 28, God gave them up. There's the judgment right there that God lets you go to be what you want. And eventually that's what hell is. Hell is where God says, okay, you said you didn't want me. You didn't want anything to do with me. You didn't want me in your life. I will give you what you want. And it, there's a great uh, Gerald Van, I don't know, the, the Dominican of a, several generations ago, in a book called The Heart of Man. He says this, hell is not so much just the absence of God as God giving us what we want. And that is not uh, wanting him. And as Paul said back in verse 18, not only by their wickedness do they suppress what is true, but in the very last line of this section, but they approve those who practice them. In another place, I think it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he talks about people surrounding themselves with teachers yeah. that will uh, uh, tickle their ears, that will yeah. teach them exactly what, what they, they want to hear. hear. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And God deliver us from ever hearing just what we want to hear so that we can embrace the truth in Jesus Christ. To me, this passage can when we look at the world around us and the trajectory of our culture, Paul right here says, why? In other words, why it is going the direction it is. It's through rejecting the revelation of God in his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. Ken, thanks for joining us today. All of you, thank you for joining us. We're gonna continue with this. We might reflect on this passage a little bit next time, but we're gonna move on to chapter two of Romans. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. We would love your thoughts, particularly on how today's passage described the world we live in and how we're going to move forward, except by helping people know the love of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God bless. <laughs>